live from Genghis Cone in the heart of Hollywood, it's the Nighttime Show with your host Stephen Kramer Glickman. Tonight we have a very special guest, author and creator of Starship Troopers and Robocop, Ed Newmeyer. We also have our house comic, house writer, house idiot, Matt Walker. I'm the voice of the nighttime show and sexy as hell, Mike Black. And now the host, part man, part machine, all calories, it's Steven Kramer Glickman. You betcha. <laughs> How we doing? Everything good? We good? Woo. Yes. Hello, Very how exciting. are we? We are good. Mike Black, uh, well done. If you Great. retired, if you retired before that intro, you, you've <laughs> got to be wide awake after hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is such a, an enormous honor to have you here, sir. Uh, we are huge fans, Ed. We're big fans. Uh, I told you right before we started uh, that me and me and Mike Black here just recently went and watched RoboCop in the theater together uh, again, which was super fun. And then uh, a couple months ago, we went with you. You and Paul Verhoeven and uh, and Casper and Van the great Casper Van Dien, our dear friend, to go watch uh, Starship Troopers at the ArcLight, which was such a total pleasure and super super. That cool. was like nerd fantasy camp for oh, me. <laughs> God, it really was. Well, it's really nice to be here in Hollywood at Genghis Cohen and hang out with you guys. Um, I, I'm I'm sorry I didn't get to the New Beverly. That sounded like a lot of fun. Oh, it was a good screening too when the audience was like. They were just into it. And there were maybe three people that hadn't seen it before. And it was just as fun watching them watch it as it was watching the movie. Because they were like, how is this happening? <laughs> like they just, They're like, I don't understand how this is yeah. allowed to happen. <laughs> yeah, Paul Verhoeven and I used to say about these movies that these movies, you know, no one was looking when we made these movies because yeah. otherwise they would have stopped us. <laughs> they, had, they had that look like they were afraid the theater was going to get raided. <laughs> yeah. they, they were just like, are we allowed to watch this? These are like 30-year-old men that were just like, I don't know if we should be watching this. Did it feel it like great. that when you guys were making it that, that you guys were going to to get stopped at any second and be you know not really i think we i think i have to say that working with paul verhoeven and with uh the producer john davison and with my partner on robocop michael minor uh and then we all michael didn't do starship but we all kind of had a sense oh we're doing this but we don't have to tell everybody we're doing this we're just going to do this because this is what we like to do mm -hmm. yeah. and it was kind of a quiet ex you know that wasn't the i think that it was I think in, in the 80s, it, it was a time to be more provocative, and people, uh, it yeah. was kind of cool to be provocative, uh, uh, coming out of Watergate and all that kind of thing. So I think that we were trying to do that, and it, and it, was, it was accepted readily. Uh, it seems more provocative now than what people oh, yeah. are allowed to do for some reason. I'm not quite sure why that is. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the other thing, too, is that uh, back then, because everything was being built and you were building these giant, real, you know, uh, practical pieces, effects, right. practical effects uh, it, it felt so visceral. Like, you watch it and you feel like it's all really happening. And I think uh, uh, sometimes in movies these days, uh, CG stuff, seem, because everything looks so clean and everything is uh, not, most of it's not done practically, you don't feel the same kind of impact. Maybe your mind feels that it's not as, as real. Well, people talk about this a lot. Chris Nolan has staked part of his reputation on it, and that is the idea that reality... Verhoeven said to me many years ago, he said, the best special effect is reality. 
Mm-hmm. And by that, it means if you can do something real, it's going to look better than if you do it in, if you fake it. And if you have to fake it, if you have to use CGI or effects, then you have to try to emulate reality. Yeah. Things have to move in a realistic way. And he's, I think he's really right about that. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing now more and more is people mixing that up and wanting you to not know it's an effect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the sometimes the best special effects, uh, in the at least in the last couple of years, have been when they have a practical effect and they mix it with CG, like having a right. giant, real, massive costume, but then uh, animating the eyeballs, yeah. you know, or animating the uh, you know something in the in the head to make something move differently. Well, human beings are very, mm-hmm. very. They really are cute about how things look and how they move. They know that we study it. It's part of our you know, hunter-gatherer brain that's trying to survive. <laughs> and so we know when something's not right. Yeah. And I think that accounts for why the, there's a, the uncanny valley where we, we look at things that aren't quite right. And, and if they get close to looking like us, we really are afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a species yeah. idea, you know. Yeah. yeah, And there are some things that we're like, the effects are getting so good that we only know it's fake because we know it's fake. You know, like I remember reading on a message board about the Avengers. Someone said the Hulk looks fake in this movie, and someone underneath wrote, "Well, the Hulk is fake." <laughs> you know, that's that's yeah. the only way you know that. At this well, point, yeah, but you, know? you, you know it, be, but but it has to. When it's good, it behaves like it's real. Uh, we right. were talking before we started about the new Planet of the Apes movie, which yeah. is sort of just an astounding piece of effects work. Uh, it really is also well, very well directed. And uh, it, it, it works because you are willing to believe that these apes are sitting around talking to each other about headaches and, and battle plans and stuff. And yeah, you really and, believe it. And in those movies, in, in uh, Planet of the Apes, what they're doing uh, differently than they would have done in the past is they're taking guys, they're putting them in motion capture suits, and they're shooting them, instead of on a stage, they're taking them to the forest and shooting them in the forest uh, which is how they're how it, it all shares the same light. Everything feels right. It all feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're doing it there as opposed to that's uh, a big <laughs> thing too. Just light alone, yeah. you know, makes a big big difference on uh, adding a digital effect like that. Absolutely, you know? and being able to capture people's performances and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but let's start. I want to go back. In okay. Time. Let's go back to the beginning. Ed. Okay. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a, a, a lovely little town called San Anselmo, California, in Marin County, across mm-hmm. the uh, Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. Wow. It was a little, it's like a little Rockwell town. And, oh, cool. Uh, it was really, I mean, of course, when you're growing up, you think everything's horrible or something. <laughs> yeah. But sure. when I look back on it, it was really quite a lovely place. It was a good time in that you were, it was the post-60s, post-Watergate, and there was a sense that you could do or think anything you wanted. In fact, you were kind of encouraged to. It only lasted for a few years, but, <laughs> but it was something that I, I, I had the full benefit of. It was also an area where a lot of interesting things were going on. Uh, that we are still talking about today. Uh, Silicon Valley was coming up, and there was a sense that there were computers around. There was a there was a this movie business up there led by first Francis Ford Coppola and then mm-hmm. George Lucas. And oh, suddenly, yeah. and George Lucas lived in my hometown, and I didn't know it, but he lived like two blocks from my house when I was growing up in a wow. little suburban street. So the way I first heard about him was someone was making a movie called American Graffiti, and mm-hmm. some older high school kids were in it because they were extras in the in the dance scene that was filmed at Tam High School. Oh my nearby. god! And then. About one summer, uh, early one summer, I think, right after I turned 16, there was a, a envelope appeared in, the, in, in our mailbox. 
And I don't know that it was golden, but it should have been because it was five tickets to a screen, a special screening of American Graffiti that was that happened at the North Point Theater. Wow! And why they appeared in my mailbox, I don't know. Uh, I think it's because they had extra, and he walked down. Mm-hmm. Someone walked down the street and put, <laughs> them, put in, them in, in, in the mailbox. <laughs> so we went there and saw this, and he, Lucas, was there. Coppola was there. This was a famous screening that is talked about uh, in Peter Biskin's book, uh, Raging, uh, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls. Uh, and it's, it, it, they showed the movie for the first time to, a, to an audience and to publicists. And the studio, then run by a fellow named Ned Tannen, came in and said, we don't like this movie, we're going to cut it. And it was sort of amazing. Now, this happened to me when I was 16 years old. So the impact it has on me is like, hey, people make movies, you know. That's yeah, cool. they make I them like movies. around And they you. make them in front of you. And yeah, they just yeah. make them. And when I was 16, uh, I played in the marching band in my high school, and they were filming a movie at this school that was right next door. Uh, and they made us shut up the marching band. We were practicing in the morning because we were interrupting the filming of Zapped 2. Zapped 2. No Scott way. Uh, very, <laughs> similar very similar experience. dollars to shut up. Very similar experience, obviously. Well, no, it is. It is I, I think when you're younger, it shows you that there's a bigger world out there. And yeah. There is a real benefit to being in, in the right place or wanting to go to the right place. Right. Like yeah. well, so anyway, the next thing that happens, a few years later, I'm in... I'm in uh, College at UC Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I'm working on the newspaper because that's kind of what I thought I should do: is work on a newspaper, uh, be a journalist. And in uh, comes a uh, a thing uh, announcing a thing from 20th Century Fox announcing this movie called Star Wars, mm-hmm. and I had never seen anything like it. It was just like, oh my God, this is I gotta see this. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was that what what later became called George Lucas's used future. No one had ever done that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then. It turns out it's the same guy who made who lives in my town who made it. And Star Wars was shot in England, but it was posted and made in San Anselmo, California. Yeah. And so when I was 19 years old, we saw the movie and were blown away from it. We by it, we realized it was made by this guy. So my friends and I went around and found all his offices, and we literally walked into his office at lunchtime one day when everybody was gone and found <laughs> you know like there were the phones and it said George and it said you know <laughs> all these kind of it was so. So it was a it was oh a very God. exciting thing for a different time for security who too. wanted to yes it was a different time for security for sure what are these scripts for episodes one two and three doing <laughs> that's right it was all laid out no anyway so we were very excited by it you could go in the phone book and look up phone numbers for Luke Skywalker and Leia Skywalker and, and, and they had all these weird coded that's things hilarious. out there so this oh was the, the effect this had on me was overwhelming like okay I want to I want to make movies. And I went from UC Santa Cruz, which is in Northern California, mm-hmm. and was then a bastion the, of gradeless hippies. The banana slugs. The banana slugs, actually. <laughs> Great mascot. Tarantino wears a banana slug t-shirt in uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I left, and I went to UCLA Film School and oh decided I had to become a, a screenwriter because I didn't have enough money to be a director. <laughs> I had enough money to, to make yeah. a movie. So. What, what did your parents do? What, what type of work did they do? Uh, my, my father was a journalist and then uh, uh, a, a school sort of administrator, high school administrator. So I grew up uh, knowing all, all the teachers knew me and I knew them, which wasn't always a good <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. And my mother was also a high school guidance counselor in the same district. They had both been big travelers. Uh, my father had been a journalist before. 
And uh, although my mother says I'm not supposed to talk about this, they actually did some intelligence work uh, when they were a young married couple in, in uh, Thailand. Wow. So, that's exciting. So they're kind of like, my what? parents were sort of like James Bond in the suburbs. What? That's so oh, that's cool. True. They were, they're, they're great people. She's still alive, and she's still, I'm still not sure she might be working for them. You know? <laughs> I love it. Now, that's a movie script. Right? <laughs> I, I've thought about that. I went to China, I went to China with her uh, uh, a year ago to Shanghai. And she still has old enemies there. She went, no, she went and met with these people that she'd worked for where she taught people English and I looked and I realized I said mom this was like where all the Chinese spies came from this is where they would run them through this program before they came here and she said oh Eddie don't talk about that (laughs) oh my god that's awesome did you go to school for journalism first you know, I, I always wanted to be a writer. I was right, rightfully afraid to be a writer because it's such a <laughs> miserable existence sometimes. But you have to come up with stuff all the time. And so I, I, I kind of thought I should be a writer. But, but I, went, I, I liked working on newspapers. It was fun to... I actually worked on the art, art, the art department side. I did the graphics and stuff. Oh, and occasionally wow. I would write. Um, and I had kind of grown up in a writing family. So then, and, yeah. and a writing family that my father sort of disdained movies. So the idea that I would go become a screenwriter, there's, there's all sorts of weird edible shit. In sure, yeah. yeah, of course. So I went off and defied my father and became a screenwriter and wrote pop <laughs> bullshit about robots. Yeah. And Fuck yeah. No, yes, uh, absolutely. When you get to UCLA, it's UCLA Film School. Yep. Were, were there a lot of people that we've heard of that were you're in school with? Uh, there were actually now, not then, of course. Yeah, but right, uh, yeah. we, I was in school with the, the, the star of that class then was a guy named Alex Cox, mm-hmm. who was a was older and he was British, so he was smarter than all of us. Mm-hmm. And he made a movie called Repo Man at mm-hmm. uh, uh, UCLA. Now his roommate at that time was a guy named Michael Miner, who I would later write RoboCop with. And I think Michael actually wrote the original treatment for Repo Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was, and Michael was the he was also older than everybody else, and he was he'd come back to graduate school, and he was a he was the star cinematographer. And I didn't know him at UCLA because I was just a lowly grunt guy. But I also knew uh, the person who showed me around the film school the first day is a, is a woman named Nancy Richardson who's cut all the Twilight movies mm-hmm. and big oh, wow. editor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, her, her later, the director she worked for was another person, Catherine Hardwick was there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, again, I didn't know a lot of these people at the time, but out of film school, just out of film school a couple of years, uh, five years, I got a job as an executive at Universal. Mm-hmm. It was then called MCA. And I was, uni- I was at Universal as an executive in a suit for about a year. And I, I, I called everybody in from that I'd ever met or heard of mm-hmm. at UCLA. And that's <laughs> yeah. how I, Michael Miner came back into my life or came into my life, showed up one day. And he, we got along and he was... He's got a lot of energy, and he said, "What do you, you know, what do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I, I really want to write this movie. I have been thinking about it forever called RoboCop, and I had been thinking about RoboCop for about four years at that mm-hmm. point." And he said something like, "Oh, well, I'm I'm doing a rock video that has a robot in it, so <laughs> we should work together." And it kind of worked like that, you know. And wow, and, but it was it was That's a hell of a resume the, for that. Well, it was, <laughs> it was probably a, you know there was a lot of luck involved in RoboCop because I kept yeah. meeting the right people. And, yeah. and that's, I think, I knew at the time that if you could get three or four people together who were in the right positions and felt the same way about something, you, you, you might have something. And it mm-hmm. really worked that way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that noise is, I don't know if you can hear it on the podcast. But. Oh, what okay. is that? We're, we're just hearing a very weird tone, just so you guys know what's going on. 
but it's out there uh, somewhere. It's now it's, it's done. Yeah, it was over. It wasn't our system. Yeah. It was out there somewhere. Just that, was, the, that was our pipe groan, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. From yeah. from Genghis Cohen. The yeah. nuclear strike warning or something. <laughs> nothing important. <laughs> yeah. We're safe. We're at Genghis Cohen, the greatest Chinese <laughs> restaurant in history. So we're fine. It's nuke proof. We're here. fine. Here. But, uh, we can just live under the pot stickers. <laughs> <laughs> if you could uh, pinpoint what the kernel was for RoboCop, like. Do you remember what inspired it, or yeah? Got it I, I actually, I actually remember the day I, I, I got the title, uh, and it was, it was kind of. I, I worked on the Warner Brothers lot. It was then called TBS, and it was owned by, co-owned by Warner Brothers and Columbia Pictures. I was working mm-hmm. for Columbia. My office was in a trailer. Some of the best offices I ever had were in trailers, uh, uh, yeah. oddly there, and it was right next to this set where. Uh, they were making this enormous science fiction movie. I'd never seen as big a set go up before, and I was just crazy to work on any kind of movie. I didn't want to be a story analyst anymore and read bad scripts. And <laughs> I, sh- I should be writing a script. And I had, a, I had some ideas about what I wanted to do. And let me give you a little context here. Sure, I wanted please. to write something about business because this was in the early 80s and business was something Huge. that was coming up and there was, it, there was this kind the of notion. mentality. It was the yuppies. It was the idea. What I really liked, there was a kind of a swagger. Like, we're businessmen. We're killers. And I kind of wanted to make fun of that and so I, I was working on another project that I think I about adventures in the corporate world mm-hmm. and was and, this before Wall Street had come out uh, no actually this this was before yes it was okay. before because uh, yeah. we, I met I, it, Wall Street comes out a year after uh, mm-hmm. Robocop or thereabouts but anyway um, so I'd been thinking about all this and at that time uh, further context Starship I mean uh, Star Wars had been big but then there had been a bunch of movies that tried to be Star Wars that weren't very big Right. And mm-hmm. the kind of the rule of thumb was those are expensive movies and no one knows how to do them. So don't do science fiction. And so I had been trying not to think about science fiction, but I really like science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I always have. Yeah. And uh, so um, I was I walk over to this set and it's uh, Blade Runner and they're shooting Blade Runner. It's in 1981. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it, there's Ridley Scott and there's Harrison Ford. And it's just this it's such a busy set. There's so much art direction that they don't even know who's working on the set, who's not. So I started just going after work. I would go work all night long on the Blade Runner set for about three or four nights while I shot there as part of the art department. And they they had me doing really amazing things like making trash, which was, you know, you take a a hose and a newspaper and just make sopping newsprint and spread it around. And that was a, you know, very glamorous job. You have shots you can point to, that's my trash. (laughs) Yeah. No, but I I remember there there was this moment, so I was working and I was tired and I was, in this again this immersive environment and one night late somebody said I said what's this movie about because I didn't really know and they said oh it's about robots and they pointed at this at Sean Young the actress Sean Young who was wearing a tutu in this Mm -hmm. scene Mm -hmm. walking on the street and they said she's a robot and I was like huh that's a robot that's not like (laughs) that's not what I think a robot looks like and then the um, then I was sitting some night at four in the morning looking at that blue car that they called the spinner. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was there on the set, just it had been, a crane had put it down. And uh, I had this big flash of, oh, there's this robot cop, the, the kind of cop that I think a robot, you know, what I think right. a robot should look like. And he's standing next to that car on the street, and he's having a, you know, a, a sense of, hmm, why are these people so fucked up? And the name of the movie is Robocop. And it was like, I couldn't even believe that. Like, ro- yeah. Oh. And yeah. then I thought about it for a while uh, and then decided, 
oh, it would be more interesting if a guy used to be a man and he turned mm-hmm. into was turned into a machine and that was really the kernel that it went forward and so it was an idea about science fiction about law enforcement and about this kind of new business world we were coming into uh in, in the 80s which we're still living in now mm-hmm. yeah. it's interesting that the image that you came up with of him standing in front of the car is almost exactly the poster for RoboCop. I, I can't tell you. And I knew it was going to be really blue dominant as a blue would be dominant in it. And yeah. I knew that it would be directed by a foreign director as I, as I went on with it. I just had this idea, wow. oh, it should be done by a foreign director for some reason. And I don't know if that's because I grew up traveling and had some romance about, you know, foreign films. or I'm not sure what it was because I wasn't really a foreign film guy, but I just had a sense that it should be, in a way, the way it worked out is you have somebody and you have, by the way, it's not just any foreign director, it's one of the genius directors of our right, time. Right, yeah. Uh, looking at this script, this world, and you know, that's a whole other story, but uh, it, it was pretty amazing how, how well that worked. And yeah, well, I mean, it, it examines America through the eyes of this person that's no longer a person who's seeing it with fresh eyes and I think maybe having a foreign director looking at America that same way might help I, I think yeah. so too and I think he really he really the interesting thing about Paul is once he commits to a, an idea he just really commits that's mm-hmm. what you're doing and for for Paul it was a little he wasn't sure about the he, he read the script and he really liked the 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 kind of the brutality of it in a way and how violent it was. He, he'd never seen anything like that. And he, I think he immediately got kind of, without it ever being stated, there was always kind of a, a Christ Frankenstein metaphor, which mm-hmm. he related to very well. And it, he didn't understand at first why it was funny. And that was a thing that yeah. mm-hmm. everybody used to say to me, like, why is this funny? And uh, even even Michael Miner in, during the first draft was like, why is this funny, Ed? I mean, you know, it's a... And, and so, and I had always had a theory that you could get a bigger laugh if you if you told a joke right after something really violent happened. <laughs> you know. Yeah, 100%. And, and it really works now. You see it. Bond had done it a little mm-hmm. bit, really, if you yeah. think about it, kind of a grim yeah. humor. But, but so we, you guys really do it best. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in RoboCop and in Starship Troopers, both of them, like, you have an incredibly violent thing. Like, one of my, one of my favorite moments, one of the best moments, I, I think, ever, is uh, when the guy uh, gets, you know, blown to pieces and he's... By Ed 209. By Ed 209. Yeah. And he collapses on, you know, on the, on the, the mock-up, you know, of the, of Delta the city. Delta City, yeah. Right, of Delta City. And and then someone goes, someone get an ambulance! <laughs> someone <laughs> like, yells. Yeah. And it's, it's and a little then, too late. <laughs> yeah, that those moments or the moments where you're cut to the the funny uh, the, the 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 fake TV show, you know, or the fake yeah. commercials, mm-hmm. or the 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 um, the brand new car advertisement with the like all that stuff. Those are they're so funny. And well, uh, what it cut to though was the the elevator scene with the executives. And one of them, it's too bad what happened to him in the other one. Hey, that's life in the big city. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, God, yes. that beautiful. Well, that, was, that was the that was kind of the attitude of the looking out for yourself. Yeah. Uh, ruthlessness as a, a way of life. Uh, and of course... I mean, that reflected a time, <laughs> that time. But, but of course, you're waiting then for, for how, well, how will this work out for, for Miguel Ferrer's character, Bob Orton, <laughs> right. you know? Uh, and uh, in any event, the, the, the counterpoint humor was good, and, and Verhoeven really got it and really went for it. He talked in a, I saw an interview with him recently where he said that at first he was like, I'm not sure about this, but then later he kind of looked at it, and he came, I gave him some, some he, he left, and he said, write a script that doesn't have any, you know, that's not funny do it straight 
And so we really struggled. And yeah. I think we couldn't really, I didn't think I finished it. And Michael like gave up halfway through like, oh, we can't, uh, you know, whatever. So when he read what we had, he, he said, you know, I was wrong. Uh, we should go back to your script. And that's just yeah. never happens, you know. Wow. Yeah. Not with an American director. At that time. <laughs> no. And so we went back to, to the second draft script that we had written. And he really invested in it. And he really went for it. And he encouraged the you know the uh, he encouraged those kind of things and it was for me it was very like oh boy i can really do this now let's let's just go and be as funny as we can and we tried to be you know so great it paid off yeah big time it really did as as uh you pointed out earlier today is the 30th anniversary it is i can't believe it yeah yeah and real having just seen it again it plays so well like we saw a really good print of it too. We yeah. saw like a very nice restored print, but the effects still hold up really, really well. How close is the RoboCop on film to what you had originally envisioned, as far as like the look of him and everything? Well, it's it's I had I, I had it, I had something in my mind that was very close to that, but this is better, and I think mm-hmm. and I give most of that credit to the producer and the director uh, because they really took. You know, the experience of a lot of screenwriters is, well, I'll go see what they used in my stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this was all of my stuff. And part of the reason for that, and, and, and the good ideas of many other people they brought mm-hmm. to it, and that, uh, that, that we as writers sort of get credit for. But um, th- it was really because you had all these smart... Look, the real secret of this, of course, folks, is to work with people who are smarter than you are. That's <laughs> all there is to it. Yeah. And if you can develop that skill, then you can, you can imagine things, and then they'll get done pretty well. Um, so, so the, uh, the experience was, it just got better and better and better. And when I saw it and no one ever thought it was low, it's good enough. And when I saw it, it was like, wow, that's like more than I could have hoped for. And everything is working pretty well. And no one ever said, you have to change this or else they Mm -hmm. would say, Hey, Mm -hmm. this is too expensive or Hey, you know, I don't think this works very well or, you know, here's a problem. And then I would change something. I also worked on it all through production. So I was able to, you were there every day. Yeah, I was there every day and I was able to work with. Paul and the production and with the actors so it more than I ever have since where you know we could sit down with the actors and if the actors were into it uh, you could always tell if they were good into it because they would never change your good lines, but mm-hmm. they would sometimes yeah. bring good lines with them. Kurtwood Smith was one of the actors who yeah. just had a gas, and it was like, what's he going to come up with now? He was he, so fun to he, watch. He was really great uh, in that movie. and the I was villain of the movie. Kind of. Kurtwood mm-hmm. Smith plays yeah, Clarence Boddicker, and he would come to the set, and he came up with guns, 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 and stuff like that. <laughs> and it was, hey, you're doing my, you're doing my job. That's great. <laughs> you know? um, he, uh, I, 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 when he's brought into the police station... One of the best things are when he spits blood on the file on the desk, and then well, you know, just give me my fucking phone call. God, <laughs> what a glorious well, bad guy line! See, I think <laughs> I, I think I wrote that line for him, but he 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 decided to spit blood on the <laughs> doctor. So you know, brilliant! Yeah. Uh, it's a nice yeah. marriage. Yeah. You know? It's a nice marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, how did uh, you were worked on the script with uh, Mike Miner. I did. And then how did that go from being a script you guys just were writing in your spare time to being a movie that got made? Well, um, you know, it was... Listen, all these movies, I think all movies are difficult things. So the movie was on and off and on and off several times and it was up. We were. I remember coming to work one day and, and John Davis and the producer said, well, that's it. That's too bad. That would have been a good movie. But we're gone. Oh, we're on it. <laughs> And then we weren't. Uh, Mike was writing on other projects at the time he wanted to direct. So he actually went off and directed a movie uh, while we were, wrote and directed a movie 
uh, while we were in pre-production on RoboCop, he started writing it, and then I think he shot it right after production ended. He came Mm -hmm. down to Dallas for about a week or so, about a week, I think. He was originally going to be the second unit director on it, but I don't know if that really worked out. Mm -hmm. That didn't really work out because we had somebody else on it. Um, But uh, then he went off and made his own movie, and then suddenly the movie came out, and it was a big hit. And Mm -hmm. what happens to you, or an unexpected hit, and what happens to you as a writer when you have something like that, that, you know, you you're new and and whatever it is they want they want you immediately you mm-hmm. become the the, uh, the 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 flavor of the week as they yeah. used to call it and so we were very much in demand in a world that wanted more action mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we had to and Michael and I were suddenly a writing team together we yeah. had sort of you know written and then he went off and did his thing and I went off and made this movie and it seemed like you know all this time had passed it wasn't that long um, and then we were we were suddenly working for Sylvester Stallone and 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 uh, uh, Joel Joel Silver and mm-hmm. Billy Friedkin, which was wow. a nightmare, you know. But I mean, a <laughs> nice nightmare to have. What were you working on there? We we were working uh, on a project called The Executioner. For mm-hmm. it was a it was kind of a novel that you used to find in airports, mm-hmm. and it was about a tough guy that that went around and sh- killed the mafia. And it was going to be Stallone killing the mafia. And uh, Joel Silver was an enormous producer in the 80s of action. Oh, yeah. Billy Friedkin was a legend Mm -hmm. uh, who had done... you know, The Exorcist and The French Connection. And so these were, this was pretty high cotton. But then we were all sitting here working on this kind of weird movie about a, a, cop, who kills, uh, a cop who kills mafia guys. So it was all right. It was, it was the, the, I, think, uh, I think the word was that Stallone thought the script was too violent. So we were, we were working too far ahead of the... The man who made Rambo thought yeah, that yeah. script was too violent. I don't know, anyway. So, uh, so it was, that was kind of what the transition yeah. was like. It was from, hey, we're making this movie. Hey, we want to be writers. Uh, oh my God, here we go. We have to go. Do yeah. Come you, up with something fast. Uh, do you like writing by yourself more or do you like writing with a partner more? You know, they, they, they both have their pluses and minuses. When you work with other people, you have to be able to deal with other people and you have to compromise and you have to listen to their stupid ideas or their good ideas that you don't like. <laughs> and so that's a, you know, that's a skill set that you have, that you have to... I think I'm more comfortable doing that now. I think I have less sense that, oh, I have all the answers. Uh, I think uh, I feel like I need as much help as I can get. <laughs> so now I'm looking for people. So it's really, it's, it's, I, Michael Miner and I are actually working together again. And it's actually kind of pleasant after all these years to, to sort of sit around because I know what he knows. He knows what I know. We don't have too much, as much ego in it mm-hmm. as before. Yeah. And, uh, and, we're, and we're, we're kind of up to speed with each other. And so, sure. so that that's pleasant. Uh, but other times, uh, this thing I just wrote for Sony, a anime called Star War- Starship Troopers: Traitor of Mars, uh, yes. was written very quickly, and uh, I think it was mostly quick because I had the story, I, I knew the characters, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it, that that was something I wrote alone in really a relatively short amount of time. Amazing. That's very cool. You've got your own sandbox now of characters and stuff that you can kind of play with yeah well when they you know you never know when you're going to come back to something like that but when I come back to Starship Troopers it's funny how how easy that one is to me to imagine things I like those characters a lot I sort of understand their relationship to each other I have a strange relationship with the character Johnny Rico he's sort of like he's like I feel like we're similar in that we're both we don't quite know what's going on we're really trying hard we're sincere <laughs> we're not that we're not as smart as everybody else but and and so I really enjoy writing that character for some reason yeah and you do an amazing job at it 
Hey, so uh, you know, I, I, uh, as always, you know, we always have Fireball whiskey with us whenever we tape an mm-hmm. episode of our show. You know, we we had the Kaplan twins on. We yeah. gave them a bottle. We give bottles away a lot to people. You know, sometimes it's good stuff. We, people yeah, like it. It's, people yeah. love that stuff. Uh, I actually have a bottle with me right here, and uh, I'm I'm gonna drink some of it. Uh, but if you listen when I open the top of this bottle, you can hear in the bottle. You can hear. The fireball whiskey talking, and it's a. Uh, you it's can't hear fireball yes. oh, talking. Oh, you totally can. Hang on, All let right. me take the lid off. Ready? Ayoga, the man. <laughs> I could be the man. There he I'm is. I'm gonna be the man today. That's the We're sound. We're gonna that- have fun. <laughs> That's fireball. the sound of the fireball yeah. whiskey inside it's the like, bottle. It's like encouraging you. It's- it does. Hey there, fireball whiskey. Hi, man. I'm so excited. I can't wait to drink you. Man, stick, stick it. Get rid of all this small talk. Just drink me already so I can have some fun in your all tummy, right. bro. Get, get in my tummy. Get Woo! in my tummy. Well, make it happen. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, how how is it down there? Oh my goodness, dude! It's so it's so cold down here. But like, dude, what the hell did you eat for lunch? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh um, my god! I it mean, smells like dog shit down here, bro. <laughs> oh my! Oh well, hopefully that fireball whiskey will make things smell just oh a little bit god. better in there. I can't. You know, I'm gonna have to hang out in your stomach for a while, and make it smell good. So uh, yeah, yeah, keep, try. Keep drinking that shit, bro. Yeah, I will. I'm gonna drink a little bit more. Here we go. Here we a little go. More. We're for friends. Yeah, we're having a party in Steven's drown stomach. Out, drown out these it's horrible awesome. choices I've made. Woo! <laughs> oh, fireball whiskey. You know, fireball. It makes you feel good and it makes your stomach smell better. <laughs> All right, back to the show. Before we hop into Starship Troopers, which is where we're going to, uh, I want to ask you a, just a quick question. I, we were going through your, uh, you know, through IMDb and through different things and looking up stuff, you know, doing our research. And uh, two things. Number one, um, there was a lot of talk that on the set of RoboCop, it was a very difficult set because of some of like the extreme stuff that was being put on people i mean as far as like the the costume like for for peter, peter weller for peter that peter was that it was an extreme set that it could, it could get kind of tough on that set was it a was it like as a writer but since you didn't since you didn't have to wear the suit and do the stuff like was it in was it a could you see it kind of happening around you that it was kind of tricky for them a little bit or not or not oh, really? oh yeah no no it was it was uh, i think Phil Tippett who did the great visual effects artist who did uh, uh, you know the walkers and the AT- stop ATATs in in Star Wars and did Ed 209 on RoboCop said that he said that making RoboCop was like being in a car accident <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was that had that kind of trauma, and it took a while to get over it. And I, I think the reason that it was tough was that we didn't have that much money. Um, it was I think the final budget on that is like thirteen nine, uh, yeah. so it's it's pretty mm-hmm. cheap for that time. Um, so we had a and we had a lot of ambitious stuff to do uh, with that. Uh, the director is a sees things that other people don't see in sure. a way that mm. he knows something's not working. 
And other people are like, well, what's, what's the matter with this? And he would say, he would be very tough about getting what he wanted. And it was, he was, you know, I hate to say it, he was always right. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, people don't like to be wrong. So yeah. you can see where that goes. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there was a lot of pressure and a lot of, there were a lot of hurty feelings at times. The, um, the, 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 the character of Robocop himself is such a cauldron. Oh, and, yeah. and it's so difficult and no one knew what it should be exactly except you know what we'd written in the script and here's this suit and here's this poor actor Peter who's a serious actor stuffed mm-hmm. into this suit and it you know the the when it when it first started we weren't sure what was what what, what it should be i mean the the actor wasn't sure I think the director knew what it should be. And there was this intense fight that was about lines in the script. It wasn't really about that. It was really about, I got to go out there and be this character. And somehow out of that, it was a bad week. And then out of that was born this character. And I don't really, it's, yeah. it's now I look at it more and more as, as this thing like, well, it was he had to get in that suit and then this happened and that happened. And then suddenly you have this character. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's, it, it, it didn't just happen automatically. And, it, and Peter really did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, like yeah. Peter had a uh, had a mime coach that was like a like a mime movement coach that yeah. came in to work with him on the character, and uh, they had worked out all these moves, and then on the first day of uh, of sh- when the f- the first day of putting the suit on. Um, he had never gotten to practice with the suit, and so he did like one day. And uh, uh, Paul uh, Verhoeven said that it was like a mistake that they and they were like, "Look, we're going to give him three days to learn how to move in the suit, relearn all these moves again, and then we'll re- we'll we'll start shooting again." Right. And uh, it it made it so that uh, you know he could he could really do the character the the, the right way. But yeah. it, I, I remember mean, him saying uh, in an interview that. When it finally clicked for him is when he uh, he was either told or decided to slow down his movements a lot, mm-hmm. which made the character gave it a lot of weight and made That's it more right. imposing. Yeah. He was like, because the original idea was that it would be very fast because it's right. the, you know cutting edge technology, but making it very slow and lumbersome, it almost made it a horror movie for anyone that was up against him. You know, yeah, yeah, like absolutely. no matter how fast I run, it's still catching me. You know. I, I love that movie so much. I think you're right about the because I remember Paul, you know, specifically saying, "Okay, don't do three things; do one thing." Mm-hmm. And so he he simplified it and he made it. You're right when you say he made it. It made it heavier. It made it mm-hmm. like yeah. more, um, uh, more. He gave more gravity to the yeah. character mm-hmm. that way. So, so then, that was interesting. Did you know? you know then that you would be launching the career of Bill Farmer, who's now the voice of Gooby for the last? You know, years? I I <laughs> didn't know that, but I just ran. It. I love Bill Farmer, and that was like I remember he was on the set, and it was this big crowd scene, and uh, Paul said, "Go talk to this guy. He doesn't have his lines down yet." And and, and, and he Paul had been like you know had already yeah. done something with him, and so I he was the nicest guy in the world, yeah. and he played uh, the the news correspondent, yeah. uh, and uh, named after my. My my godson Justin Ballard Watkins, mm-hmm. and he uh, he was great. And then recently, I ran into his wife mm-hmm. through another friend of mine, Louis Abernathy, who 
who took me to Genghis Cohen for the first time, I must say, is <laughs> wow. also oh, wow. in Titanic. It all ties uh, but, together. Uh, it all ties together. But anyway, he he was Bill Bill Farmer's wife. I met Bill Farmer's wife, and she said, "Oh, he's he's the voice of Goofy. He's had the greatest, uh, uh, you know." And I I was like, "Wow, who knew? Yeah, that was great. Right? That was really good." I know when he came in, he came and did our podcast, and we and, <laughs> and he did great. our live show too, and performed stand up. He followed Dane Cook on stage in front of the sold Dane out. Dane Cook and improv. Tom Segura were the two comics right before him. Oh, and. Yeah. He crushed. fucking crushed. And he hadn't done stand up in like twenty five years. He hadn't done yeah. it at the, at the improv in yeah. like t- in easily twenty twenty five years. Yeah. Um. So when I when we look through uh, when we start you know researching RoboCop right, uh, you start running into not only RoboCop the movie but RoboCop the TV series and then the second time they tried the TV series and then a third time <laughs> and then a fourth they've done a lot of they've tried to do the animated a, series the animated yeah. series yeah. Uh, the video game the second time they did a video like they have done they have done this a lot how involved have you been with other versions of this or RoboCop 2 the other like other parts we, of- we got fired from RoboCop when we had written a we had written in about a month. No, it was actually about three months. We had written from de- from zero. We had written this very creaky second idea. And then the writer's strike came along and we got fired because they force majeure us and they hired Frank Miller to mm-hmm. write under uh, a, what do you call it, a... The pseudonym. 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 No, the WGA gave him oh, an authorization oh, that they yeah. would, you know. So, uh, so we, we were off the project suddenly. And... Uh, and other people wrote, and we haven't really had much to do with any of the RoboCop stuff since then. Uh, we did, we were brought back in to work on the TV show in Canada, mm-hmm. and we wrote the pilot for that. Um, the The big problem there seems to have been that they really couldn't quite get the tone right. Yeah. And later, the showrunner told me, "Yeah, we, we just couldn't get it, guys." Um, and I think the tone and the humor is so important mm-hmm. to why that that yeah. movie works. It's more important than people think it is. Oh yeah, and yeah. and I think that when they made the they did the remake recently, and it was they they really seemed. Jose Padilla, Jose Padilla is a great filmmaker. He really is, and he was kind of he's a documentarian, and he kind of comes from a school of of like cop melodrama. If you look at Elite Squad, and so he yeah. went right into all the horror of it, the wife, mm-hmm. the kid, and right. all that kind of stuff. And I think the audience just done done is is kind of gets bummed a, out a little <laughs> bit. Goes a long way of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had a, a, a fun thing happen right before we started the show. Uh, Eric Peterkovsky, uh, who is our booker on our show and helps book a lot of the uh, the folks that we have on here, uh, called us to say that that uh, that he had someone uh, that he wants to book. And then mm-hmm. we said, uh, Ed Newmeyer's coming to do the show today. And he goes, oh, Ed Newmeyer, I used to work for a company called, uh, it was Bauer Benedict. Bauer Benedict's agency, agency mm-hmm. which ended up becoming UTA, mm-hmm. uh, which is the agency I'm at. And, uh, and and he said that he was working there reading scripts, and that he got a script uh, written by uh, co-written by Ed Newmeyer and Miguel Ferrer, Miguel Ferreira, actor who played Bob Morton. And on the cover of the script, it said, uh, "Fuck off, butthole. This one's mine." And that's all <laughs> Eric Peterkowski could remember about it. And he said it was super. He just remember it was violent, and it was a badass uh, piece of work but he couldn't tell me anymore <laughs> it was it was uh, it was something that Miguel Ferrer and I Miguel Ferrer and I became friends on on the set of Robocop and uh, we decided we would write a script together 
and we wrote a script about these two hitmen who lived together in this kind of fantasy version of the mid-50s, and they were young men trying to make their mark, mm-hmm. and it was called Hitman. <laughs> and uh, and he, they were, they, they lived in this kind of weird, this city called Big Town, and the... <laughs> The, I mean, we were young men. So the bit, you know, they say they say every character has to want something. So basically, the character, the, the main character that that, that Bob that, that Miguel wanted to play, whose name was Rudy. Rudy wanted a blowjob. That was what he really wanted, and nobody in the 1950s could get a blowjob except for that's hilarious. Except for the head gangster who got them all. Like <laughs> and, yes. and so they take oh down the big gangster. God. He falls in love with the wrong girl. <laughs> there was this other kind of weird thing where the the, the partner is this like guy who's really good with guns and he's really smart technically and stuff but he's also he might be gay but he can't talk about that so it was this wild little thing that everybody was sort of interested in at first and then I think they, they rightfully were afraid of it well the, wow. the checks write themselves on something like that I, yeah no I think everybody the movie never got made but it kept every two years every so often it would show up uh, we had a reading once George Clooney read read the narration and we had all these you know we had a big reading with all of Miguel's friends oh my and, god and uh, so it went around and around and around I think when movies do that scripts do that and they don't get made there's a reason that they don't yeah. get made sure and I think this would have been very amusing <laughs> but uh, it was well, if it I was ever become there. a studio head <laughs> you send me the finished bring draft. me that script <laughs> yeah, bring that monster blowjob <laughs> find me movie. that monster <laughs> script yeah. Yeah. where's that monster yeah, monster, monster blowjob blow movie. Blow movie so the reason the re- so we were really trying to shock and offend and I think it's interesting because we turned that in and Peter <laughs> Benedict who was the one of the partners at Benedict Bauer, Bauer Benedict. He was sort of like, "Oh my God, this is really an Ed Newmeyer script." <laughs> so you know. Anyway, is there other things that you've written or worked on that you'd like to see done that have not come to light? You know, I actually feel like I get tired of ideas, and when if if an idea doesn't start moving forward in a way and grow, it's just I, I kind of lose interest in it after a few years. And I do feel that that if a script hasn't been made, you have to be careful of it. There's usually a reason. I know everybody else thinks, oh, there's all these great scripts that have never been made, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I had this experience once where I almost got a job on a script called Pluto Nash. Oh and yeah. Pluto Nash wow. was like yeah. had I had read it when I first got into the business and I thought it was great. And I and then 15 12 15 years later it it was going to get made and I thought god there's nobody better in this world to write Pluto Nash than me. <laughs> and uh, and I didn't get the job. And I was mm-hmm. like I couldn't believe it. I was just bitter about it. And then it came out and it was the biggest bomb Warner yeah. Brothers had ever had <laughs> yeah. and it killed the director who didn't hire me. Ha. And uh, you <laughs> yeah. know so uh, you just don't know and I'm not sure why that is because there are scripts that really read well and then somehow they don't make it through and I think it's because you know there's not enough people saying I want to I, I believe in this or something mm-hmm. like that sure yeah. sure I get that um, when uh, when you started on uh, Starship Troopers you even though you started uh, on it you know when they when they put it into you know writing and you know, when you started production um, but you originally started with this script as a as a book because you were a fan of this of the book. Originally, so Robert right? Heinlein wrote in 1958 Starship Troopers yeah. a year after I was born, 
And uh, I read it like many people do when they're 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. If for those who know science fiction, they, you know that it was one of the, what they call, uh, it was the last of Heinlein's juveniles. He wrote a bunch of books for kids, mm-hmm. science fiction books. And then after, the, after Starship Troopers, he became a serious uh, writer for adults. And Starship Troopers, when you're 14 years old, 13 years old, or you know, about to join the military or in the military, is the greatest book you've mm-hmm. ever read. And, and, and you've kind of... It's it's interesting because it's it's almost it's very minimalist and you almost create your own story for it. If you go read the book right now, you're going to say, "Gosh, there's no story here at all. It's really just a bunch of ideas about military service and responsibility and how people are and stuff like that." So it has a real philosophical core. It 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 was one of his. There was a he he was known for a few books, but it was Starship Troopers and Stranger in a Strange Land and some mm-hmm. other ones. And I think that he is best known now for Starship Troopers. Uh, I don't believe that the Heinlein estate uh, likes the movie because it doesn't reflect what yeah. they think the book is. And there's a lot of hardcore fans who don't like it because it sort of turns it on its head. But strangely, the military loves it. Yeah, and, they uh, really do love the, it. Uh, no, one day some, I, was, I was somewhere with a friend of mine in D.C. and they said, oh, you, you're Starship Troopers? You know, your movie plays 24 hours a day in every combat theater I- that we're in. This was a military person. So wow. wow. And somewhere in the world, some soldiers are watching your movie. Um, wow. One day, many years uh, after Amazing. that movie, I was, it was uh, 115 degrees in Pasadena. I was trying to get some, you know, gas for my, my grill. And you go down to the U-Haul yard and there's mm-hmm. nobody there. No one wants to come out. And I see this big guy, like, running between buildings. Oh, there's, there's the guy. So I go after him and he's got these Varney sunglasses on and he looks, he's just an enormous man. And he, I think, oh, that guy was a soldier. And he, so we're getting, I'm getting my propane, and he said, I said, so, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I must, I have had my three enlistments, I got to do another one, I lost my house, I'm going back, I'm part of the National Guard. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, and he said, uh, he said, um, and I said something like, I wrote a movie once about, about the military, and he interrupted me immediately and said, my favorite movie is Starship Troopers. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, I said, really? He said, yeah, I show that to all my new guys. He's a, I'm a sergeant. I push soldiers. I show it to them all. And the first thing I should do is sit them down and make them watch Starship Troopers. And I, I said, oh, that's the movie I wrote. But that kind of didn't matter to him. He just kept going. He said, that movie, I said, so I finally said, why is that movie so important to you? And he said, well, because, you know that scene? There's a scene where, like, they're, they're on that planet. And, you know, suddenly they're facing all these bugs. And their lieutenant gets killed. And I said, yeah, and this is the Clendathu thing. And mm-hmm. yeah. he said, that happened to me. And I said, kill them all. And mm-hmm. that's what I want my guys to do. So, <laughs> you, and, I, and I realized at that moment, you know, okay, wow, this is pretty serious for some people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, yeah. and uh, if you go over to Afghanistan, apparently there is a Johnny Rico CrossFit gym with a 20-foot <laughs> high sign that has Johnny Rico on it holding a Morita. And, uh, wow. uh, and and the uh, the Canadians fly uh, one of the Canadian units was flying the mobile infantry thing so mm-hmm. so it's interesting when you write these things you don't know how they're going to hit and what they're going to mean to people mm-hmm. you know Casper Van Dien uh, came from a family of uh, you know military uh, like a whole military family and yeah. they were pretty unhappy with him being an actor. And not, you know, not. Yeah, he went to military school. And he went to military school, and everyone was like, why aren't you joining the ranks just like the rest of the family? And then when he got that movie, when he got your movie, he said that still to this day, his entire family is so proud of him because of that film. Yeah, I think his dad said, he said to me once, he said, yeah, but dad, I didn't serve. And he said, no, you did. (laughs) 
you did you did you did what you were supposed to do so yep. you yeah know, that's i'm glad casper cool. is, yeah. casper is such a great it's hard to even know where to begin with that because again we became we became quite good friends out of the show but there's i have a we, we, we know that we have some weird relationship together. He's mm-hmm. like my little great looking brother. He's like, <laughs> he's, or he's, again, we, uh, it's very easy for me to write for him. And we, we just kind of go, oh, maybe we'd do this. And it's always a good idea. So <laughs> I, I really enjoy writing that character and, and hanging out with, with, uh, Casper, it's almost like you made up a character and he became your friend. Mm-hmm. I you love know? it. <laughs> now, how did you get Starship Troopers? Like, is that because your relationship with Paul and he was signed on and he, they licensed it and we're going to make this movie? Or, or how did that come together? Well, originally, I, I went to my producer, John Davison, and said, you know, uh, I just saw this Jurassic Park movie that our friend Phil Tippett did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we could do a movie like Starship Troopers. <laughs> and uh, I had written a little treatment for it that was that kind of added all this story in mm-hmm. because I hadn't really read the book uh, in many years, but I, yeah. I remembered it in a certain way and I thought, oh, there's a girl and there's a triangle and you know all this kind of stuff. And so we went and pitched it to, um, we pitched the idea of doing a movie like this. And I guess we both assumed that Starship Troopers might, might or might not be available. But mm-hmm. we went to Sony where we had a relationship and we pitched this movie where, where, where John did. And they were like, eh, we don't get it, you know, whatever. And then John went and called up the Heinlein estate and found out that no one had ever optioned that book. They'd just been ripping it off for years. So <laughs> wow. we, we optioned the book and, uh, and and suddenly I was writing Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. And I and it was, it was a little bit of a, you know, God, you'd go someplace and you'd tell somebody you were writing Starship Troopers and they'd, they'd go, oh. That's the reason I joined the Marines, that book. So mm-hmm. it, had a, it already had a cultural following, and I, I felt like I had to do a good job. Were you on it. your own on that one? I was on my own on that mm-hmm. one. And, and Paul was off making Basic Instinct, and then um, he, was, he was shooting. And we would meet on other things, but, and he knew I was doing this, but I, I actually decided not to tell him much about this until it was, the draft was done. Yeah. And um, so I worked with John on it, and we did. It took about a year to write mm-hmm. to write something. And when we gave it to Paul, he was like, "Well, you know, okay, sure, I get it." And so we sat down and we did the second draft, which was again substantially what the movie became. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, while he was working on Showgirls, I think it was, and uh, and we just kind of slowly amp- ramped up. And there was, you know, it wasn't for sure he would do it. Um, when Showgirls came out, I think and didn't do as well as he wanted it to yeah. do. I yeah. think that helped make get Starship mm-hmm. Troopers made. So thank God for Showgirls. <laughs> Hilarious. Now, how did the uh, the newsreel part of that come about? Where it was sort of like have that the newsreel satirical feel to it? sort of. Well, the, the you know in RoboCop, I had always uh, the the media breaks were something mm-hmm. I had put in as sort of curtain breaks, mm-hmm. yeah. and Paul understood those. We did have a big fight once about whether or not you should break into those. Like, would you be in a newsroom and show them, or would they just break full screen? And I wanted mm-hmm. them to just break full screen. Yeah. yeah. And that was the only big fight we ever had. And then he kind of came back and went, "Yeah, okay, yeah, you're right." <laughs> yeah. And so when we came to D- uh, Starship, I used a similar device, mm-hmm. but. In that case, I wanted to not. I wanted it to be. It was really about propaganda. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that I did, I did when I was doing Starship, is I read, you know, I, I watched all these propaganda movies, movies that were made during World War II between the, you know, uh, um, um, Pearl Harbor and the end of the movie. There's about four years of movies there that are where Hollywood's at war. Yeah. And I think one yeah. of them actually ends with something like they'll keep fighting and they'll win, which is how mm-hmm. we end the movie. But but the 
it was all about uh, you don't know the outcome of the war yet, but yeah. you're assuming that because of your sacrifice and your superiority, you're going to win. Yeah, it always felt to me like a World War II movie about bugs in space. Well, we I think I think that Paul and I knew it would be World War II. We knew it would be Lenny Riefenstahl. I was writing that mm-hmm. way. I used to describe it as a Delmar Davies movie, like A Summer Place, mm-hmm. where you had Tad, uh, Tab, Tab Hunter and Sandra D. <laughs> Except that I would say, but they go to they, they they join the military, go to space, and and fight giant bugs and become Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and so it was a it's a very meta idea of using movies and history kind of loosely to to make something. And so I think we're we're making a sort of a World War II movie there, and a lot of the decisions were made about World War II, even the the shape of the ships. I'd done some reading somewhere and said that the reason a Sherman tank looks the way it does is because that's the biggest shape they could mold. And that was mm. the, 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 the turret of a tank. And so they, they had certain... So I said, I, I told that to Paul, and Paul says, yeah, we should make the ships look that way. So mm-hmm. they're really... You notice they're round. They're kind yeah. of big, square shapes. They're not like sleek George Lucas stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so... And I think it was... Paul didn't want... Paul wanted them to fi- fire real rounds. He didn't want mm-hmm. them to use laser guns. Yeah. We, we had a big problem with the book, which was that I had written it with power suits in it. And believe it or not, in those days, that was just one. That was one war too many for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like, yeah. well, you can have the bugs, you can have the power suits. So. Yeah, there was. And there, I know there was. A, there was talk about the power suits being that they could jump really high and they could they could do these leaps, but then also that you know meant you know green screen and, and oh, it was it was wire work, wire work, and green yeah. screen, and all these. I mean, it was going to take forever. Yeah, and, and but you know what, man? I wonder if that's them, why uh, Halo never got made. As a movie. Well, I don't know. You can do it now. I think now the, the, it's the, less the, of a thing. Yeah. But yeah. The reason Paul didn't want to do it was because he thought it gave the humans too much advantage. And yeah. he wanted them to look iconically like soldiers. Yeah. And he, so, I, I think it was a very, he also it's wanted a very the, smart idea. It was a very smart idea. Because it keeps them down it, yeah, on the ground. Right. Vulnerable. And vulnerable. And, right. So I liked this, in a way <clears throat> that it wasn't RoboCop, that it wasn't like these guys were all like, geared up and totally formidable against what they were fighting. It was the opposite of that. Yeah, you know? I agree. I agree with that. And I, you know who the people are better. And when later in Starship 3, uh, we made we did a, a, a Marauder power suit, but we only used it for five minutes because it's a little power suit goes a long way. Yeah. In my, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. That should uh, be a bumper sticker. <laughs> how? Which ones of... Because uh, we're... You know, the, the one that... That is premiering at San Diego Comic Con. The anime, yeah, the did. anime version. Uh, that, uh, like, uh, up to that version. Have you been involved with all of them? Or have you have you taken off times throughout it, or how has that worked for you? Well, I, ha- I have a I have an interesting relationship with Sony about these things, and they have made. Um, they decided because you know when Starship Troopers came out, it was it was not the financial hit that they wanted, but it was it it, it was incredibly successful on home video. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it may have been one of the most successful titles there was. It it hit right when the video market, when the CD, I mean the DVD video market went mm-hmm. big. Absolutely, and I think yeah. they sold zillions of copies of it. So it, it had a lot of brand awareness, and they decided that their home video division wanted to make some little movies and both Phil Tippett and I wanted to direct 
And John Davison said, well, you know, guys, if you make these little cheap movies, uh, that's how John talks, uh, you know, you could both direct before you're 50 or too old, you know, whatever. That, yeah. was, that was the big come on. <laughs> and so, so Phil directed uh, the first one, uh, Starship Two. Yeah. And he wanted to make a kind Hero of, a, of the Federation. He wanted to make kind of a horror movie and, uh, and with, with zombies and things like that, which I was, you know, okay, I'll try. Uh, and so we, we made that movie for like five and a half million dollars mm-hmm. on a stage in Redondo Beach uh, where it was it was the hardest show I've ever been on for the least amount of money yeah. I must say I learned more about making movies doing that than I did on on the movies before that and uh, uh, then uh, that movie came out and did no one liked it that much but it did mm-hmm. a lot of business it made a lot of money so they made another one and mm-hmm. this one now it was my turn to direct but, Marauder yes but <laughs> Phil and John had had enough and they left and so I was I, I, I made it with another producer at Sony um, uh, David Lancaster and David Lancaster turned out to be a great a great great producer for me he went on and he did um, let's see most recently he did uh, Nightcrawler Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, pretty good movie. And, and yeah. on that one, you had uh, Jolene Blaylock come back, and you had Casper Van Dien. Well, Jolene, Jolene was actually from Star Trek. Yeah. I, I made a big oh, deal right. about about how we had we oh, had yeah. yeah we had the we, hottest chick in the history of Star Trek. But that down. was the return. <laughs> that Blaylock. was the return of Casper Van Dien. Yeah, I, I, I said I would only do it for whatever reason. Phil wanted to make a movie about anonymous people, and maybe it was also a cost issue. I had always thought Casper or Rico Johnny Rico should be mm-hmm. in all these things. So, so I said I, I, I only want to do this if. I wanted to make a movie about religion, and I wanted to make a movie with starring Casper Van Dien. And so they said yes, and that's kind of what we got to do. It was mm-hmm. a great, a very good experience, and, and the movie turned out probably better than it should have. Well, I, I've seen uh, Traitor of Mars, uh, the, the new one, mm-hmm. and it's uh, badass. It's a total badass Well, it's, it's because the director, Shinji Aramaki, is quite amazing. And uh, it's, it, I hope that anime fa- fans will feel the way you do about it. I, I feel like they will absolutely, and I think Casper uh, is awesome, and, and Dina Meyer's back on that one. Well, I actually got them to do. I, I said, let's do. We have to have Casper back again, mm-hmm. and yeah. Because yeah. I always, I guess, I should put it in my contract. But I also had an idea <laughs> for bringing the character of Dizzy back in a way that was acceptable since she was killed on on Clendath, or yeah. on Planet P. Uh, the uh, so they actually went and got Dina, uh, and, wow. and so that was fun. I love good. it. I love so it. So cool. That's amazing, man. Um, are you excited about Comic Con? Are you? Do you like going down there? It's it's hard not to be excited at Comic. It's it's a <laughs> it's the biggest boat show in the world. I it's mean, it's all amazing. about excitement, and, really. and it's hard. <laughs> you go there, it's, you can wear you out, but it's really if you like genre and you like these things, it's sort of amazing. I'm pleased that I'm I'm going to Comic Con. Yeah. You know, do, yeah. you wa- do you? Yeah, Stephen, are you excited about all the lines at Comic Con? Um, are you excited? I about can't them? wait for the lines. <laughs> um, I, what what is your favorite thing to do at Comic Con when you go? Hmm. You know, usually we do some sort of uh, a panel or something, and that's you know that's scary, but it's fun, and and you sort of that that sort of defines mm-hmm. it. Otherwise, you just get to see everybody, and you see a bunch of people you don't usually see, and yeah. you can go uh, have good sushi at Nobu or something, and <laughs> wave at. Oh, there's actually the last time we were there five years ago, we we sat down in in a, I don't know if it was Nobu or not, but it was some uh, ritzy restaurant that the Sony people were taking us to, and there sitting by himself at a table was uh, Quentin Tarantino wearing a Serape from, from Django. And it was nice. all by himself as this giant. And everybody's like, oh, my God, that's Quentin. That's Quentin. So I have this rule with kids that when you see somebody you like, you should go over and say, I want to shake your hand. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was. I brought my 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 uh, putative stepson, uh, my girlfriend's son, Cameron, who was I think he was about sixteen or seventeen, and mm-hmm. I said, "Go over. You know what to do. Go over there and shake his hand." So the, all the Sony people were like, "Oh my God, what are you doing?" And so <laughs> he he went over and he shook. He said mm-hmm. something to him and he shook. And Quentin was really nice to him. And then he looked over and he waved. He said, "Hi, Casper. Hi, Ed." And then yeah. Sony thought we were cool. For at least, yeah. for at least awesome. a day. For at least a <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I had that I happen with uh, George Takei yesterday. I met him. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's wow. great. I was at a memorial service for a Japanese-American woman, and she was involved with the Japanese-American Museum here with that. And I uh, turned around, and I was like, oh, that's George Takei back there. And then after the service was over, I went over and talked to him, and uh, he was very nice. And I told him we'd done a podcast with Walter Koenig. Yeah, uh, and I told him that Walter has a shelf of Chekhovs that we saw in his office, <laughs> and asked him if he had a shelf of Sulus, and he said he had a room full of Sulus. <laughs> and then I told him I loved him Howard Stern, and he gave me an "Oh my!" Oh. And, then, <laughs> and then I was like, "That's oh. everything I need." That's all, you all right, want. I'm out. So you can <laughs> die. You. Don't I'm out. Anymore. Good night. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm leaving on a high note. I don't want to stay overstay my welcome and make him annoyed. So I was like, "All right, thank you very much," and I was gone. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I love I love that. That's the best. At, uh, and especially at Comic-Con, you have these weird interactions with people that you would never run into anywhere else in the world. Uh, the last uh, couple of years ago, I was there, and I, I ran into M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, wow. And I wow. said, uh, I said, I wow. M- I go, M. Night Shyamalan, huge fan, man. Love your stuff. It's so so terrific. He goes, oh, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. I go, I go, and I, I, uh, I can't wait to see the new movie uh, because uh, I can't wait to see what happens you know, the end, you know, the thing, when you do the thing. And he goes, uh, what thing? And I go, <laughs> you know, when you do the little the twist. twist, a little yeah. twist at the end. Yeah, You know, you the little twist. And he goes, whatever you say. <laughs> and I go, whatever. No, 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 it's like, that's your thing. And he goes, okay, sure, whatever you say, buddy. And I go, I go, it's not what I say. It's what everyone in history says about you. I mean, you have the twist. You do the twist. You do the twist. And he goes, okay. And like walked away super awkward. And, uh, and it was, and it was cool. Well, never remember, be an M. Night Shyamalan movie. so <laughs> wonderful. Do you remember when you first told me that story mm-hmm. when I told you? What's that? I said, he just did that for you in yeah. real life. He just did yeah, the twist. He did a third act twist. Did you want a third act twist on me? You wanted to call him Chubby. You should have called him Chubby Checker. Yeah. Oh, God. I've had a couple of those where it's. I think I know what it is. Here's what I would say. Yeah. Nobody can resist, mostly, no one can resist if somebody sincerely comes up to them and say, hey, I really like you. And, you're, and, and you don't ask anything from them. Sure. And you yeah. just say, you're really great. And, I, you know, shake their hand and whatever. Yeah. yeah. If you start talking to them like you know them. Right. If yeah. you say, hey, I read uh, about this happened to you or that, they don't like that. That's a, yeah. That is yeah. a, it's like an invasion of them. It gets too much. And it gets too much. So I, I think you just have to go up and say, hey, you're great, man. Thanks. Absolutely. Then, I think there's yeah. nothing wrong with saying that. Um, however, David Blaine. Uh, I was at uh, <laughs> I was at the W Hotel and I was standing waiting for my car and David Blaine was standing out there and I went oh my god David Blaine so I'm such a huge fan love magic love watching your stuff uh, and your, your specials are so terrific big fan and he goes uh, you want to see something amazing and I go yeah of course he goes alright pick a card pulls out a deck of cards just him and me yeah. pick, a, pick a card I go I pick one he goes Okay, put it back in the deck. I put it back in the deck. He goes, okay. Um, is this your card? Pulls out a card. I go, no, that's not it. He goes, sorry, it's late. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, oh. <laughs> well, it was nice meeting you. And yeah. he goes, yeah, I'm 
a little drunk and it's been <laughs> I just <sighs> what time is it? And I go, uh I don't I think it's like I look at my watch, I go it's like two like two in the morning. He goes, Look again. I look at my watch again. He goes Look harder. I look at my watch. My card is folded up and inside my watch. <laughs> I was there like, you go. how did you do that? He goes, I told you. <laughs> and he just walked away. Very good. It was the fucking coolest. That's yeah. very good. I love that. And that's like the, my favorite. Also, I got to give huge props to like to you and to, to Casper Van Dien and everyone else for uh, letting me moderate your panel. I get to moderate oh, the awesome. Sony panel. Do you know how is, relieved we are that oh. you're going to be there to carry us? <laughs> oh, yeah. Get out of here. I cannot wait. I'm very, very excited. No, it's going to be Tons fun. Tons of Starship Trooper gonna be fans fun. are going to be like, oh, that's so cool. Ed Newmeyer's here. Oh, it's so cool. Johnny Rico. Casper Indian's <laughs> here. And who's that fat guy? Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Get away, fat guy. Stop, ru- stop that, ruining everything. I want to stare at Cash Mandian's hair. That question is not specific enough at Comic-Con. Yeah. Who's that fat guy who's not cover anything? Um, before we wrap things up, um, I have to ask you, uh, favorite... Do you have a favorite moment from each film? Do you have like a favorite? Is there a favorite moment that you can mention, or 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 is it, is it all? You know, I think the 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 moment for me, it, it, there there isn't. Oh, I wait mean, a second. Hang on. What? I have to. We have a present for you. Oh, Hang on. Oh, yeah. Think okay. about it. Think okay. about it. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Yeah. While Stephen's doing that, is Ed Two Hundred Nine named after you? Ed 209 was kind of accidentally named after me because mm-hmm. I wrote it. I, well, what they call this thing? Well, they call it uh, an enforcement droid because I'd watched oh, Star, okay. War, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, and they used to put numbers after these things. Yeah. So I, right. I came up with a number. And then I, I looked at it one day and I went, the next day, or I went, oh, that's my name. And I thought, good. And, then, <laughs> and, I, never, and I never really said anything about it. No one yeah. ever said anything about it. It just kind of, I think John Davison used to kind of kid, oh, you know, Ed 209, just like Ed nine you're destructive uh, <laughs> and you don't know what you're doing but uh anyway no it, it was it would just it happened that way and, you and i do like ed 209 as a character a great deal i think yeah. he's a wonderful a great character yeah. oh god when he falls down the stairs that is just the best thank you That's my uh, favorite uh, phil tippett and the baby rage oh. at the bottom oh god yeah. i love that oh, see what phil understood was that that here's how how he works he thought oh this is new so it's a yeah. baby yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so yeah. You like it as you like it. It's really smart. Yeah. You, you guys know? got so much out of that thing. Like, I love the shot after RoboCop shoots it with the gun, and you see its legs, and you're like, "Oh man, it's still kicking." Okay. And then <laughs> you see the rest of it, and the whole top half is missing. So, what is that a reference to? Oh, that's I don't a know. reference to the dinosaur, the Triceratops in the original King Kong, when they shoot it and they walk by the tail, and it goes. Oh, cool! <laughs> that, he was. I'm sure. I didn't ask him. Yeah, I'm sure, sure that's what he was doing. Oh my god! Because we all know that's and that's you yeah. Know, that's that's the great stop motion. Oh, that's great. Well, look, uh, Comic Con's gonna be a big party, and uh, the best way to party is with Fireball whiskey. That's why we brought <laughs> you a right. bottle of our favorite, <laughs> Thank you very our much. favorite oh whiskey. God. There you go. <laughs> cinnamon yes. whiskey. It's <laughs> cinnamon whiskey, the greatest Canadian whiskey, the greatest of all time whiskey. Well, I know what I'm going to do with this. Next time, Michael Miner and I have a problem <laughs> writing, I'm going to say, Mike, I got a solution for us. <laughs> Fireball Whiskey. We have a new writing partner. We have a new writing partner. Fireball Looks kind of like the devil with a horse's head, but we'll, we'll do it. We've seen worse. <laughs> I love it. Uh, thank you so much for coming and doing this. Is there You have uh, social media and ways of people looking up and seeing you and watching your I'm, I'm on and Twitter and Facebook. Okay. And, and it, my Facebook page is open to anyone and 
I'm I'm the easiest friend in the world. Oh, I love cool. it. I love it. Uh, what's your what is it just your name? Yeah, it's just my name. Ed Newmar. Ed Newmar. Uh, what about you, Michael Black? What's your I am on all social media at Mike Black Attack. Yes, you are. And what about you, Matthew? You can find links to everything at funnymat.com or if you are irritated by my comments, let me know at mattwalkersucks.com. Which people do. <laughs> people do do that constantly. Uh, you can always get me at Stephen Glickman, S T P H E N Glickman on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to the Nighttime Show podcast. Uh, happy comic conning, everybody. And uh, I hope you have a, a wonderful time again. Uh, Ed, it is an honor to have you on the show. We are huge fans. Thanks again, man. You're the Great coolest. pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to Comic-Con. We're going to do more of this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.